Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be with you. Um, this is actually hugely encouraging for me. Uh, way back in 2001, I think it is, uh, Brad and I and others who are now at, at Botany Life uh, were praying for you, praying uh, for the launch of this church, and uh, it's hugely exciting to see what God has done through Botany Life. And I, and I better enjoy saying Botany Life before they change your name on you, So, but I love some of the names that have come up today, but we'll see which one sticks at the end of that. Um, But because you greatly encourage me, I want to greatly encourage you today. That's the point of of the message that we're going to give you today. Um, We did a series at ABC a few months ago called Welcome to Wonderland. And sort of the the line behind it was putting the wowness back into your relationship with God. And in a sense today, I want to encourage you and put the wowness back into or help you put some more wowness back into your relationship with God. I love your mission statement. I'm going to put it on the screen. Now, hopefully you all know this, but uh, this is the Botany Life mission. Our mission is to passionately love God and purposefully love others. I think that is a tremendous mission. And I want to base today's message on Welcome to Wonderland, putting the wellness back into our lives, based on this wonderful mission that Botany Life has as a church to achieve. Uh, Let me kick off with uh, something that I did a few months ago to illustrate where we're going to go today. Uh, In May of this year, I went to Richard Dawkins at the Aotea Centre. Richard Dawkins is um, probably the most famous atheist in the world. And he packed out the Aotea Centre. And at one stage, I felt a little bit um, overawed because they asked the question, who believes in Richard Dawkins and and his view on atheism? And the whole of the Aotea Centre puts their hands up. And I'm thinking, okay. And then um, there was about three of us in the whole audience who kept our hands down. And I thought I'd better be very careful the conversations I have around me with people tonight. But I came away from that time with Dawkins and hearing him speak and hearing other viewpoints about atheism, uh, thinking if anyone is not enamored with God, it is, it is Richard Dawkins and people who are atheists. And uh, for us to achieve this vision that's on our screen now, I think we need to learn to be more enamored with God, to, to be wonder at God, to have a wellness about the way that we look at God. And so I want to encourage you today to do that. Dawkins, um, he has a quote uh, which goes something like this. Presumably what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die. We decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the beanstalk. Now the problem is that New Zealand today, 2018, roughly half of our country would in some form or another agree with Richard Dawkins' statement on your screen. Half of the country today are becoming secular. 42% ticked the no religion box at the 2013 census. The 2018 census, they're predicting it's going to be close to 50% are ticking the no religion box. And so the question I really want to ask today, based on your vision for botany life and based on the environment that we find in our, in our country, the question is this really that I want to address today. How do we we passionately love God, which is our vision, and purposefully love others, which is our mission, when more and more of our country think that what Christians believe is as true as Jack and the beanstalk? I'm going to let Paul answer that question for us today. I think the Apostle Paul uh, gives us some wonderful answers to that question on your screen. We're going to read uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. And as we read it and go through it, I want to help us by putting the wellness back into our relationship with God, the way we view God, will help us to be more purposeful and more passionate in the way we love others. 
Now remember, Paul is writing to a similarly cynical environment that we face in New Zealand today. He's writing this to the church in Rome. And they too are cynical about Paul's viewpoints on Jesus and the resurrection. So let's read it together. We'll have it on the screen and we'll start at verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their f- foolish hearts were darkened. I think in this text we are seeing how Paul is answering the question, how do we put the wowness and the wonder back in our lives so we are better equipped to go and love God and love others in our community? And I really want to put this into four headings today. How can we love like this? How can we love purposefully and passionately? I think there's four headings that Paul is giving us the answer to in this. He says, first of all, we can know God. Second, we do know God. Third, we don't know God. And lastly, we can truly know God. So let's look at that first heading on the screen, we can know God. And he talks about that in verses 19 and 20. And he's saying, in essence, we can know God because what is known about God is plain to them. And in verse 20, since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I think Paul is saying here to really kick us off and look at the fact we can know God, he is saying there are clues from creation that we can look at creation and we can get these clues to see the characteristics of God just by looking around us. Now I I carefully use the word clues, not proof. Because proof is that no rational person can deny. But I actually think Paul is giving us clues that we can look at. And I think he's actually saying if our cognitive abilities were greater and in better shape than what they are, we could better see the clues more readily. But I want to show you, uh, when Paul is saying uh, these clues, let me show you a couple of them that I think scholars today and experts today would take as clues of God's existence in his creation. The first one is what we call a cosmological clue. And what's really interesting in, the, in the, looking at understanding from what has been made, the cosmological clue goes something like this. The, the question that we are used to in our, in our country today is we ask the question, how can something come from nothing? How can something today come from nothing? And you might have different views on how the universe was created, but if you have the Big Bang uh, view on how, the, how creation came about, how the universe was made. The, the Big Bang, there's a, there's a cause and there's effect, there's cause and effect, there's cause and there's effect. But the question that everyone has to ask is, what caused the initial cause? Now, if you're an atheist, you have a problem with that because eventually you have to come back to something supernatural or a deity caused the original cause, which atheism doesn't like, doesn't accept. 
But Paul is saying, look around you. Understand basically what you know, that nothing comes from nothing. Something must have produced the something to start with. And that is the clue that Paul is saying, look around and you can see, understood from what has been made. Paul says it's clearly seen. But he also gives another clue, a teleological, well, that the experts and the scientists today tell us is another way of seeing what Paul is writing, and it's a teleological clue. And tele comes from telos, which means design. And design, uh, it's, the world appears so designed today that we look at the design in this world and we naturally assume there is a designer to what we see. And we look at things required for this earth. Uh, scientists will call it the Goldilocks uh, part of, of the universe. Uh, the Goldilocks simply means everything is just right for humanity to exist. And so we look at the speed of light, which the constant is just right. We look at the gravitational constant, which is just right for us to exist. And experts today will say another way of understanding there is a God from what has been made is looking at the teleological clues. It looks something like this. It looks like a hundred dials or more perfectly calibrated to give us humanity, to give its existence on this earth. That is an example of the clue that Paul is talking about, that we can know God. Now, Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking, before he passed away this year, and others would refute this. And they're intelligent men. They're, they're, they are um, very good in their field of science, and they would push back on what we've just said. Here's how they would object to the teleological clue of understanding from what has been made. Uh, they would say that in the Big Bang, when it happened... Whenever it happened, thousands, billions of years ago, that there are a, a zillion universes formed from that event. And when you have a zillion universes, then you have a chance of getting one that is just right, that humanity can exist on, out of a zillion. And so because of that, they're saying, this is Earth. This is the one in a zillion that humanity can exist on because you, you will get one out of a zillion. But here's the problem with that. Philosophers and scholars have a lot of fun with the way Dawkins and Hawking and others have tried to explain that. Uh, William Lane Craig is an example of that. And William, Craig, William Lane Craig takes this theory of uh, we got here because one in a zillion, the chances are there must be a planet that supports life. And he, he writes it this way, and I'll read it with you. He says this. Suppose you are to be executed by a firing squad of 100 trained marksmen, all of them aiming rifles at your heart. You are blindfolded, the command is given, you hear the deafening roar of the rifles, and you observe that you are still alive. The hundred marksmen missed. Taking off the blindfold, you do not observe that you are dead. No surprise there, you could not observe that you are dead. Nonetheless, you should be astonished to observe that you are alive. The entire firing squad missed you altogether. Surprised at that extremely improbable fact is wholly justified. And that calls for an explanation. And here's the kicker. You would immediately suspect that they missed you on purpose by design. And Craig goes on to say in the same way that the most natural assumption when you look at the universe is that behind the design of the universe, naturally you would assume that there is a designer. Paul is effectively writing this wonderful letter to Rome and he is saying, this is not a fairy tale. The existence of God is not a jack-in-the-beanstalk fairy tale, and you can look around you in the universe and see the clues cosmologically and teleologically 
which show to you that we can know God. And I think it's good to kick off there because of the country and the, and the, the way our country is going at the moment to know, no, there is a God and we can know him. And that kicks us off in this whole discussion of awe and wonder at God. But there's a second heading that I want to show you that I think Paul does. He says, not only we can know God, but we do know God. But then he says something fascinating about that we do know God. And he says it in verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That word suppress is a fascinating word in the Greek. It's made up of uh, two words, kata and echo, to give us kata echo, that is the suppressed term that Paul is using. And the term kata in the Greek is a really um, powerful, overpowering, dominant, sort of coming down hard on something. That's what kata means. Echo, on the other hand, means I have, I, I own, I have possession of something. And so what Carter Eka was saying is when it comes to the, to the actual truth, human beings naturally push down hard and try and keep the truth in a box and will not let the truth come out naturally about who God is and what he does. We stop him coming out. We suppress him. We Carter Echo him. Let me illustrate that. I was just watching this yesterday, getting ready for today, and I have to admit I cringed when I watched it. Um, but I am of the generation that grew up watching Star Trek. Now, not the Star Trek, the movie, but the Star Trek that used to be on television. And it was done in the late 60s, and he had, you know, Kirk and Spock and, and the Enterprise, and, you know, you, read, you watch it today, 2018, you think, oh, my goodness, you know, we used to watch that. It's a little bit, well, it didn't have the special effects abilities that we have today. But it's a, it was a wonderful illustration in one of the Star Trek episodes of a man called Harry Mudd. And Harry Mudd has a nagging, nagging wife. And Harry Mudd gets sick of his nagging wife, and he gets miserable, and he flees to another planet. And he gets to this planet, and there are robots on this planet, and they're all beautiful women. Every single... I told you it was basic science fiction. Every single robot on the planet is a beautiful woman who never contradicts him, who never talks back to him. It is paradise for Harry Mudd. And all these robots, all these beautiful women just say, yes, dear, yes, Lord Mudd, whatever you would like, Lord Mudd, I will do for you. But old Harry Mudd, he misses his wife. So he turns his wife back into a robot, and the fascinating scene is where she, true to form, she berates him. She goes back to her form, and this is what she says on the TV episode. She says, Harcourt Fenton Mud, where have you been? Is there alcohol on your breath? Where have you been? And he keeps going, be quiet, woman, be quiet, be quiet. And eventually he just walks over to her, presses the stop button. And she's in the middle of talking, and she's like, it goes, it goes, you, 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 you. It just stops. That's what goes on in Star Trek. Basic. But facet, by the way, Kirk and Spock arrive on the Enterprise and they rescue Harry Mudd because Harry Mudd realises that eventually those relationships are not genuine and he wants to go back to genuine relationships. But that illustration is classic Pauline Carter echo. It is a classic suppressing of what is going on in Harry Mudd's life. He suppresses his wife. You, 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 you. Just turns the off switch. Paul says, 
we do the same thing to God. We suppress him, we turn the off switch, we know he exists, and in a sense God is talking to us, you, 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 and we just try and turn the off switch so he can't talk to us anymore. That is an example of Carter Echo of what Paul is saying in relation to how we relate to God. But there's something else going on in the verbs there in the Greek that it's not as obvious in the English. And in the Greek, in the verbs in that sentence on your screen, it is a present passive participle that are verbs that Paul is using. And in a sense, he's saying something else apart from the initial suppress. He is saying, we have as human beings deeply conflicting dialogue with God. We have the reality of God in our lives, but we push it down constantly, constantly, and try and remove it from what we know to be true. So let me ask you the question of that statement I just said. Uh, what is the evidence today that we as humans suppress, push down, kata echo God in our lives? What is examples of that? Let me illustrate that with another, another way of putting it. I love C.S. Lewis. Um, I've done some papers on C.S. Lewis I've been to Oxford and Cambridge and, and learn a lot more about C.S. Lewis. And the thing is, when you study Lewis and, and his writings, you actually sort of intersect with all his contemporaries of his time. He lived in the uh, 1920s, 30s, 40s. He died in 1962, I think. Um, and Lewis was uh, one of those uh, scholars in Oxford and Cambridge. And he attracted and he had around him a whole lot of other scholars. Many of them are atheists who became Christians just like Lewis did. Uh, you would know J.R. Tolkien, who was a contemporary of Lewis, but there are other famous literary uh, poets, authors, uh, like uh, Jode and T.S. Eliot and other people that were actually intellectual giants who were atheists who became Christians at the same time that Lewis did. But there was one interesting guy, a guy called W.H. Alden, who uh, has written a lot of poetry and written a few books, and he was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. And he was living in New York. He was an atheist. He didn't want to know about God. And he's an example of someone who uh, was pushing down on the reality of God but realized that God was really there. Uh, he went to a movie theater in New York in 1939. War had broken out. Uh, they weren't, America was not yet involved in the war. And uh, he went to this movie theater in New York, and it was a a documentary, a newsreel about the German invasion of Poland, which happened in 1939. And what shocked Alden when he uh, came out of the movie theatre was decent, normal German people who were sitting in that movie theatre in New York were yelling out at the end of the movie, out with the Poles, down with the Poles, remove the Polish people from Poland. And Alden came out of that shocked as he looked at humanity, how they could be demanding that to happen in New York at that time, which wasn't even at war. And his biographer a few years later wrote this about Auden's conversion experience from atheism to Christianity. His biographer said this, The novelty and shock of the Nazis, Alden wrote, and the bitterness with which Hitler's acolytes dismissed Christianity on the grounds that to love one's neighbor as oneself was a command fit only for effeminate weaklings, pushed him inexorably towards the unavoidable questions. If, as I'm convinced, the Nazis are wrong and we are right, what is it that validates our values and invalidates theirs? The answer to this question, he wrote later, was part of what brought me back to the church. In confronting modern society, he argued, it was impossible any longer to believe that the values of liberal humanism were self-evident. 
Humanism needs to be grounded in something higher than a purely material account of the universe and in something more compelling than the hope of secular utopia. Only religion could support basic liberal concepts like equality and human rights. Only God could ask humans, as the poet put it, to glove their crooked neighbour with all their crooked heart. What was Alden saying? What was the biographer saying about W.H. Alden? He was saying that deep down in our souls, everybody knows there are some things that are non-negotiably right. There are some things we just know is true. The need for human dignity, the need for freedom, the right for humans to have clean water and food to have and to drink and to eat. And W.H. Auden turned from atheism, knowing that to have that moral law, that standard in each human being, there must be a higher being that implants that moral law into him. Oldham was saying, we do know God, and we know him because we have a human standard which points to a standard giver in the universe. And that is what converted him. And that was an example of uh, Alden realizing that he was suppressing the truth, and deep down it is possible to know God. Let me give you another example of this Carter echo of the suppressing the truth, a bit more up to date. Uh, Francis Collins is one of the world's most famous scientists today. Those of you who are into science will understand that Collins uh, was asked to head up the Human Genome Project in the States. And the Human Genome Project was in the 1990s and was effectively uh, researching uh, the DNA that all of us as human beings have. And Collins' job heading up the research project for the American government was to effectively give a DNA map of what all the DNA combinations were for human beings. They completed it in the year 2000. And Francis Collins stood up and stood alongside Bill Clinton, the US president at that time. And this is what Bill Clinton said on that day. He said, Clinton with Collins beside him, he says, Today we are learning the language in which God created life. We are gaining ever more awe for the complexity, the beauty, and the wonder of God's most divine and sacred gift. What's fascinating about what you see on your screen is that Francis Collins actually wrote it. Clinton said it, but Collins wrote it. And Collins had been an atheist, yet he became a Christian. And for him to put on that screen, even mentioning God, shows his journey from atheism to being a Christian. How did Francis Collins become a Christian? He realized that he had Carter echoed the truth. He realized, just like Alden, that there was a moral law that was in all of humanity which suggested there's a standard giver, divine, who gives it to all of us. And Francis Collins actually read Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and he was so impacted by the moral law discussion that Lewis puts in Mere Christianity that he said this, in the sense of how he became a Christian. He said, Encountering this argument at age 26, I was stunned by its logic. Here, hiding in my own heart as familiar as anything in daily experience, but now emerging for the first time as a clarifying principle, this moral law shone its bright white light into the recesses of my childhood, childish atheism. What are we saying? What's Francis Collins saying? He's saying he was just like Harry Mudd, he was just like W.H. Alden. He pressed the button of God and, and turned God off in his life. But he knew that God was bearing down on him and that it was God that was real and that God exists. We do know God. 
says Paul. Third, not only we can know God, look out into the universe. We do know God, but we look to press the off button and suppress him. Third, says Paul, in bringing the awe back into our relationship with him, he says, but we don't know God. We live life as if we don't know God. And he says something interesting in verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And that word, give thanks to him, underlined on your screen, is the Greek word, euharisto, uh, which means we do, not, we do not acknowledge God, we do not appropriately acknowledge that he uh, is running this universe and that we are accountable to him. That's what Paul is saying. We don't know God. Let me illustrate that um, in a personal way for a minute. I am doing uh, a degree uh, at the moment and I have had to submit uh, a, a long project, about 120 pages of a project that I have to submit to, this, uh, to Fuller Seminary. And I submitted uh, the first half of it not long ago. And there's some euphoria when you submit the first half and you know they're going to come back and mark it and give comments and that's good. Uh, and you can't move on until you've got that and then you submit the second half a bit later. I got a stinging letter back from Fuller Seminary. Uh, this is only about three months ago, so it's still a bit raw for me. And it came back, this is two days after I submitted this first half, and it said, Dear Mr. Collins, it was very formal, we write to advise you, you have committed plagiarism. And we take plagiarism very seriously. And you will be removed from the program unless you give us a satisfactory explanation of how this plagiarism has occurred. They had run my document through uh, plagiarism checkers that they have, and sure enough, I had, uh, had about three or four uh, quotes in there that I had not credited to the original author. I just not uh, referenced it properly. Now, I went back to them, and I said, well, this is how it happened. I've been working on this for two or three years. Whenever I find something interesting, I just cut and paste it, put it into my document, always intending to go back and either quote it or change it, or delete it, or do something like that. But these ones I've missed. Luckily, they let me off, because Christianity is a religion of grace. And they accepted my explanation. But I couldn't believe how hard the letter was. Because I learned that day that Fuller Seminary, and all seminaries, universities, Auckland Uni would be the same. The biggest no-no for students is to commit plagiarism. Why? Because you are looking like you are the original author of something and you're not. You are looking like you are the owner of something and you are not. And what Paul is saying is we as human beings commit cosmic plagiarism every day. We live our lives looking like we own ourselves, we're the authors, we run the show. And Paul is saying no and people refuse to give thanks to the actual author and the originator of this universe. Paul says we do exactly the same. We can know God, look out into the universe. We do know him, but we suppress him. And yet we don't know him because we refuse to give thanks to him. We commit cosmic plagiarism. So you're thinking, well, I thought this was meant to be an encouraging message. I'm feeling a bit flat what Paul has said so far. How does that encourage us to go out and love people purposefully and passionately as, as uh, the Botany Life mission statement is to do? Friends, the answer is in the wonderful fourth point. We can truly know God. And the way that we get recapture our sense of wonder and awe in God, which has enables us to love as we should, 
is one simple word in verse 16. And here is the word. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let me just reflect with you on that one word for a minute. Park the gospel in one part of your mind, and then we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. I'm going to ask you a question. You don't need to answer it. Just think in your minds. Here's the question I'm going to ask you as we go back and look at verse 19 and 20. What are the things in the rest of the text that you can't see about God? Paul has said you can clearly see things, understand from what has been made. What are the things that you can't see clearly? I'll tell you what they are. Two words. Grace and love. You see grace and love in the gospel. You do not see grace and love when you look at creation and look at the clues and look at what has been made. Let me prove that to you if I can. Look at nature. When you leave today, go and look at nature. Look at and consider volcanoes and earthquakes. Do we see grace and love when we look at volcanoes and earthquakes? What about astronomically? What about when we look up in the stars? When you look up in the stars tonight, do you see grace and love when you look at the the vastness of the universe? I don't know about you. I feel very small. I sometimes feel very scared when I look at the vastness of the universe. I certainly don't naturally see grace and love. Well, you say, what about biologically? Biology, what about that? What about when we look at the animal world, the human world, do we see grace and love in that? No. We see the strong devouring the weak. We don't see grace. We don't see love. What about, what about religion then? When we look at religion, do we see grace and love? Friends, we don't see grace and love in religion. You look at Buddhism. Buddhism is a religion of compassion, but it is not a religion of grace and love. Look at Islam. There's no grace in Islam. So here's the issue. You ask any New Zealander when you go on the streets today, most Kiwis, non-church-going Kiwis, give me one word that describes God to you. They will say one word. God is love. We think God is a loving God. We don't go to church. We don't believe in Christianity. But our view of God is a God of love. Here's the question. Where does that come from? Where does this conception that God is a God of love comes from? Friends, it comes from one place. It comes from the Christian Bible. It comes from the Christian gospel. When Paul writes that gospel, that is the place that we look and we understand that God is a God of love. So what does that mean for us? How does that develop an awe of God in our lives? It means this. It means that despite the fact we suppress him, Despite the fact we commit cosmic plagiarism and do not give thanks to him on a daily basis, it means through this love in this gospel that Paul is talking about, it means that Jesus came down and took our punishment for our wrongful suppressing him, for our wrongful plagiarism. He took the punishment so you and I don't have to. That is the gospel. And when we understand that and realize that, it changes us and says, oh my goodness, look at how much God loves me. Look at the fact I should know him, but I suppress him. Look at the fact I refuse to thank him in my life. And yet despite I do that all the time, despite I sin, 
God loves me enough through the gospel to come and die for me. Let me put it another way when we consider we can truly know God. Haven't we been captivated in the last two or three weeks by the, the Thailand rescue with the, the soccer team going in, the wild boar soccer team going into the caves? And every day, at least in our place, we would turn on the TV and watch the, read the news and see, are they, are they being rescued? They've got three out. They're getting another three out. They're getting four out. What a miraculous rescue. The whole world was watching that event going on in Thailand. Those boys, all of us get this, those boys were lost, they were irretrievable, they were dying, they were helpless, and they were hopeless. They could not get themselves out of that cave. That is a picture, I think it was taken, when the British divers, the two divers, come up from the water and ask them the question, how many of you are, are there? And I think they said 13. And we were profoundly amazed of the ability for these Navy SEAL divers to rescue these boys who had no other form of rescue. Can I tell you that there's a verse in the Bible that says Jesus did exactly the same for you and I? There's a wonderful verse that Paul is writing to the church at Colossae and we, talk, we call the book Colossians in chapter 1 verse 13. Paul writes this, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That is an amazing verse. That is an Indiana Jones coming into the dominion of darkness to rescue people who were lost. That is a superhero coming in to rescue. That is the British Navy divers, the Thai SEAL divers coming in to rescue. You and I, all of us in this room, were just like the wild boar soccer team. We were trapped, we were lost, we were irretrievable, we were dying, we were hopeless. And Jesus, through his love and through the power of the gospel, came into our darkness, came into our cave, and brought us hopeless, helpless people, took our hands and took us out of that cave and brought us into the world of light. That is how you recapture the awe in your life. That is how, when you understand what Jesus has done for us, it enables us in this world to go out and love people passionately and love people purposefully. And there's two applications I want to briefly finish with. The first one is on your screen is the application of think. How do we recapture the awe? How do we get the wonder back of God in our lives? Simply think. Look around the universe and look at the clues of the existence of God. Understand that the moral law is an example of a standard giver and know that this is not a fairy tale. So think about your Christian faith. But secondly, lastly, come. Come to this Jesus. Come to this Jesus knowing that we were trapped and lost and dying and the God of the universe, because of the gospel, because he loves us, entered our cave and he took our hand and he took us out of the darkness and into the light. Friends, to the extent that we grasp how sinful we are and how loved we are, and when we move that from a concept in our head to a reality in our heart, 
to the degree that that melts our heart will be the degree that we can carry out this wonderful mission that Botany Life has as a church, to passionately love God and to purposefully love others. We are going to, uh, a song that's going to follow in a minute, I'm going to pray in a minute, but there's a wonderful song we're going to sing called Glorify You Alone. And the, one, the first two lyrics of this go like this, of the song we're about to sing. Who is this King of glory? Beautiful and matchless one. Allow this beautiful and matchless one to mount your core of your heart this morning and allow that to wow you and bring the wowness back into your life. And from that wowness and that melting will we be far more effective in loving God and loving others. Let me pray. Father, we confess today that we all suppress you. We confess today that we refuse to acknowledge you so often and refuse to thank you. And yet, Lord, we are overcome this morning by your love for us. You entered into our cave of darkness. You took our hand and you brought us into the kingdom of light. Lord, would you help us today through the power of your Holy Spirit to push that truth deeper and deeper and deeper into our souls? Would you help it to melt the core of who we are as people? And then as that core begins to thaw and we say, oh my goodness, look how much God loves me. May that drive us to be outward looking people, looking to passionately love God and purposefully love others. Work in us, we pray, supernaturally by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Thank you, Tim.